0: Ten Commandments. Uh, here is a quick summary of the Ten Commandments that are there. Right, no other gods, no idols. Do not take the name of the Lord in vain. I won't ask you how many of you could remember the Ten in order off the top of their heads, although my discovery is very few uh, Christians can these days. Uh, partly because we've uh, stopped saying them in communion every Sunday, uh, when we had communion every Sunday and uh, we go for the shortened love the Lord your God love your neighbor as yourself and we never actually spell out what loving neighbor and loving God is by telling them the Ten Commandments because that's what it is so the summary constantly given uh, is a problem it's one of our problems of running church that is I run it for today but I don't realize I'm actually running it as part of 20 years And so because it works best today, I do it today, I do it today, I do it today, I do it and in the end I've never taught people the importance of these other things like the Ten Commandments or the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed or, as has been pointed out recently, the Athanasian Creed which we're supposed to say 13 times every year in church and when was the last time you said it at all? And the reason we have the Athanasian Creed is the Apostles' Creed is not enough to defend you in Trinitarian thinking. So you actually need to have the Athanasian Creed from time to time but as soon as you put it on people say, oh that's too long, we can't do that. It may be too long for today but if you never have the Athanasian Creed then the congregation doesn't actually understand its Trinitarianism properly. Uh, That's why we have the Third Creed and so it goes on. Here is the problem, Ten Commandments. Now what has been replaced with the Ten Commandments in Bible churches is love God love neighbour. What has been replaced with the Ten Commandments do you think in the community? Not rhetorical question. Human rights rights, yep golden rule rule. being true to yourself yourself. Uh, tolerance. tolerance No, you're not evangelising Roman Catholics fiercely enough. Seven deadly sins. That's what's been replaced with the Ten Commandments. Uh, we'll put them up now there as the seven deadlies. Thank you. We can run them out quickly. I've lost the PowerPoint. Here we go lust, gluttony, greed, sloth, anger, envy, pride. They're very common in our community. I agree with the other things you said, by the way. Human rights, all kinds of charters of what morality is about have been put in the place of the Ten Commandments. But this one is very common in our Australian community today. This is what they think. You see, you and I are dealing with atheists all the time, and we think atheists all the time. But remember, the vast majority of Australians aren't atheists. Most Australians are religious and the biggest single religious group is Roman Catholic or rather lapsed Catholic. And this is how they think and they spread it constantly. Now, what I want to ask you is, what is the fundamental difference between these two? Um, but sorry, I can't ask that because one comes from God, the other doesn't. You know, but what are, And you look at these as, a, as, as attempts to describe sin... What are the differences you see between the lists? There's, there's more than one difference, so, but what are the differences? Yes. Yeah, okay, we don't need the rest of the discussion. That's the one I wanted. That's the answer. Get to the right answer straight away. It's lovely to hear. See the difference? There's a real difference there. Now, coveting is about myself, although it's coveting other people's things. So even that is a, a relational one. But all the others have got to do with me inside myself, whereas the Ten Commandments have to do with me and God, me and my parents, me and my neighbour. They're relational. That difference means that that is part of the shift in our society away from communal thinking to individualistic thinking. And a lot of our preaching is pop psychology preaching well not our preaching of course brothers and sisters and I don't know what you're preaching because I don't listen to you but a lot of modern preaching has to do with pop psychology which has to do with individualism how I deal with my sin how I struggle in my life how I find meaning in my work how it's about me mine, and I whereas the Bible is much more relational and therefore communal and it's other person centeredness that matters why is it that you don 't like or you may like people raising their hands when they 're singing, closing their eyes when they 're singing, and so on it 's because the very nature of communal singing is being denied by individual rapture that I am now caught up in praising God and i, and the fact that there 's anybody around about is an irrelevance now because it 's all about me praising God and experiencing the wonder of God. If you want to raise your hands and close your eyes when you're singing, there's a thing called a shower. Go for it. But if you're in a community, you function communally, is what we are to be engaged in. And it's not, you don't come to do your individual act. We had it previously, of course. Uh, with with the communion where everybody traipses out to the front and has their private communion and then goes back to their pew and the deadly hush is all around about with the organ playing very softly and the one thing you mustn't do in the queue is smile at anybody and say hello because we don't want fellowship at communion do we that would be a very bad thing to have and so individualism runs our country in lots and lots of different ways today we're looking about people and other person centeredness and being concerned for the other person it 's reflected in where we choose to sit in a meeting it 's reflected as you come in and sit in this building uh, where 's the seat i 'm comfortable in is not the question the Christian person thinks the person is where can I sit that will be helpful for others where can I best position myself so that i can I can help and serve other people is the character of it. but That is such a foreign thinking for most people as they enter a room. They are so conscious of themselves they want to get to the first chair that's available where they can sit down and be inconspicuous and not have anything to do with anybody else. It's it's a frame of thinking that touches every aspect of life. You either think about yourself or you think about others. It's not just the grand moment when you're being crucified. Uh, Crucifixion happens incrementally through the rest of your life that are involved in. Now today we're going to look at one of the most painful and difficult areas of modern life, that is divorce. It's difficult because nearly all families in Australia have been affected by the epidemic of divorce in our society, and so there's there's very few of us here who have not been affected directly or indirectly by divorce in our families. Be it our parents, be it our brother or sister, be it Uh, close friends or neighbours be it uh, my children's friends Uh, it just is everywhere in our society and that's one of the problems of it Uh, that is the more divorce the more divorce it's a contagion a society which doesn't divorce doesn't divorce a society which does does and so the people who are most likely to divorce are the people who are married but are the the children of two divorced families that's the most common divorce group in our community and it it just goes across the generations come with me to Malachi chapter 2 Malachi chapter 2 this is a Bible study as well as an analysis of what's happening around about us and it's really important for us to grasp as ministers of the gospel are we on Malachi 2 if you'll just turn up your phones there and I'm picking up from verse 10 have we not all one father has not one God created us why then, are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. for Judah has the sanctuary of the Lord which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign God. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this second thing you do. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who hates and divorces, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. Uh, NIV is quite different uh, for those of you who are reading the NIV and wrong. Um, Nowhere in our society are people hurting more than in family life. Divorce, separation, loneliness, child abuse, domestic violence, the problems are enormous. The gospel of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ has such wonderful news for broken families and broken lives. But instead of Christ's pattern for marriage influencing the world, the world's pattern for marriage is influencing and directing the church. And this is something we need to stand up about because we really have to fight the battle at this point. The NCLS shows us that the group in our community that is least in attendance in churches is the divorced. Uh, it, it, we just do not have divorced people. Now I'll show you reasons why in a moment as we come down the track. But as divorce increases, so church attendance decreases. The two are connected Because we have very few divorced people in church. How do we relate to the divorced in a society that is growing in divorce? How do we help them? And it's not just when we're talking about marriage here, well, look, I'm single, it's got nothing to do with me. It's everybody, as I want to make sure that you understand today. Because marriage is not a singular affair. That's part of the problem, that people see their marriage as a private matter. Marriage is not a private matter, it's a public matter. That's why we need weddings and that's why everybody's marriage affects everybody else because we are part of the family of humanity. Now the, start of putting, <coughs> the starting point of understanding this topic is faith because marriage is not about love, marriage is about faith and faith is commonly misunderstood. So up in the dictionary definition that you have there from Macquarie Dictionary, it has nine different dictionary dex- definitions. This is, number nine, this is number two in their list of nine. And I think this is how Australians are now using the word faith, and that is why in an Australian Bible, if anybody ever has enough money to produce such a thing, the word faith should be cut out of the Bible. Because if that's what people mean by the word, then that is not what we're talking about. A belief which is not based on proof. Superstition is what is meant by it. In fact, you'll find Mr Dawkins uses superstition as a definition of faith. Well, we are not superstitious people. That is not what we're talking about. If that's what people mean by the word, we've got to use another word. Uh, It just doesn't work for us anymore. Justification by superstition is not what uh, what Martin Luther meant. Biblical faith comes in in the context of covenant. Now, we mustn't, I think, be too technical about the term covenant. It just means an agreement, a contract. But an agreement and a contract has a promise about relationship built into it. And so I think we've um, out of touch with my PowerPoints at this point, but I thought we had covenant up there as well. Do we or not, or what is happening uh, as we're clicking our way through? Yes, it's an agreement, it's a contract, it's a promise of relationship, it's a promise, it's about promises, it's a key part. That is, I promise to give you money, which you can assure you I won't, and you promise me to give me your car which I don't want anyway or your house and then what we do is we sign the deal we sign the piece of paper we sign some legal paper or I give you a deposit for it and here is the covenant made the promise in the future I'll pay you the rest of the money in the future you'll give me the car in the context of a covenant faith means what Macquarie definition gives us that is Not just faith is belief, which is not based on proof, but it gives other definitions. Confidence, trust in a person or thing. Or again, it gives the obligation of loyalty, fidelity to a person, promise, engagement. Now, these meanings of faith, which still are in the community, and that's why we can still use the word, These meanings of faith do flow out of a biblical understanding. Having faith means trusting the promises that have been made to you and it also means keeping the promises that you have made to others. Faith works both ways. That's why the subjective and objective genitive of of the scriptures Uh, is there because faith is both objective and subjective at the same time. Faith and faithfulness are, in a sense, interchangeable. In English, they are actually differentiated. That is, I trust your promises, I have faith in you and in your promises, but I am faithful to my promises, I keep my word. Uh, Donald Robinson used to say that faith was fixity, firmness, solidity. It's, It's what is there the immovable, the fixed. Now, trust and faith are essential for relationships and epistemologically they're essential for knowledge as well. That is, the person who doubts everything knows nothing. Um, Descartes, in the end. Right? Uh, I am," uh, I think, therefore I am, which even that has been shown to be wrong. If you doubt and consistently doubt everything, you will ultimately know nothing. You cannot know a thing. All knowledge requires faith. All knowledge requires trust. Furthermore, a person who doubts everybody has no friends. You can't have a friendship with people if you're constantly doubting them and doubting their word. So when we enter into friendship, we trust And trust is given easily when you first meet a person until it's proven wrong. But trust is almost impossible to regain after you have betrayed it. So you meet somebody, they say, my name is Bill. You say, okay, Bill. It mightn't be, it might be George. But he's told you, Bill, you trust what he's saying. And he says, I'm a carpenter. And you say, okay, he's a carpenter. He's not really, he's an orthopaedic surgeon, but he wants you to be, you trust him. But when you find out what he's told you is untrue, when he makes promises to you that he doesn't keep, you stop trusting him. Recovery of that trust is extraordinarily difficult. That is the problem that I've come across and I've seen in, uh, in books on uh, sex and counselling, etc., the problem of most couples caught in adultery is usually not sex and it's usually not the other person it's the breach of trust that's what the innocent party finds most difficult to forgive and to ever restore the sex they they are revolted by angry about, the other person they'd gladly murder but that's not the issue that makes the marriage impossible to keep going with, the issue is I don't trust you anymore. I can't trust you anymore. Uh, I think I picked it up from Rosie King, uh, the great sex therapist uh, advisor here in, in Sydney, who, not writing from a Christian point of view at all, where she says, trust, regaining trust in an adulterous broken marriage, regaining trust is like moving sand of Bondi Beach with a fork. In my experience of helping couples, that is exactly right. You, you, you gain a little bit of trust and then it all falls apart again. And you gain a little bit of trust and then it all falls again apart. And it takes years, if ever, to be able to regain trust. Trust lies at the heart of every relationship. Trust lies at the heart of our knowledge as well. Trust is really important. So when people attack trust, call it faith, call it superstition, they are attacking the very heart of relationships. And ultimately knowledge as well come back to Malachi in chapter 1 and 2 phony religion is being denounced the priests were unacceptable to God in chapter 2 verse uh, 2 chapter 2 verse 2 find it if you will not listen if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name says the Lord of hosts then I will send the curse upon you I will curse your blessings indeed I will have cursed them because you do not lay it to heart and so it goes on They have defiled God's name by showing contempt to God in offering up sacrifices they've failed in their ministry of teaching the truth. Priests don't only sacrifice, priests in the Old Testament remember are teachers of truth. Now here again in the second half of the chapter we see phony religion. Phony because of two issues, mixed marriages and divorced. Both of which illustrate Judah's faithlessness. Firstly, then, is the problem of mixed marriages and offerings. For in 2.11, they desecrate the sanctuary that the Lord loves. And 2.12, bring unacceptable offerings to the Lord of hosts. For while they're making these offerings in the sanctuary, they're marrying foreign women. Which, if you remember, the post-exilic period was a problem. It appears not to be just the kind of national mixed marriage of Judah marrying foreign gods. That is symbolized by Judah men... Marrying foreigners. So they want to continue the rites of religion, offering up the sacrifices in the sanctuary while denying the holiness by which God calls his people. The second issue is the problem of divorce and offerings in verse 13 following. Their offerings are not acceptable in verse 13, and the reason is given in verse 14 namely, they have been faithless to the wife of their youth, the wife by covenant. That is, then. They are divorcing their wives, verse 16, and it brings in the word which is talked of in terms of being faithless, and that's why I use the word faith and covenant to introduce what I'm talking about. Now, to understand why this is all so serious, why the Lord is so hostile to them, we need to understand marriage. And the covenant of marriage. For 2.14 talks of the Lord being a witness between you and the wife of your youth, Your wife by covenant. That is, the marriage is a covenant. It's a contract that is made with promises for the future. In the Bible, marriage is seen as both symbolic and actual. The actual marriage is between Christ and his church, which is symbolized in our marriages, where a man and a woman, creatures of God, are united by God as husband and wife. It's important, therefore, that we understand marriage properly for it symbolises something that is so important, namely Christ and his church. And it's why the subject of marriage is so gospel evangelistically important. I've come of recent times more clearly in my mind to understand that contextualisation is really critical in evangelisation The contextualisation, though, is not cultural. The contextualisation is creational. The context in which we seek to evangelise is the creation, for that is the universal that all humans have. That is the one that we need to affirm, is creation. When people get converted, they get back into the created order properly. And we need to promote creation and its order as the right context in which to hear redemption and its order. That's the right context rather than create culture, which is always a sinful distortion by over-reinforcing aspects of creation. But that's another talk another day. Marriage goes back to creation before the fall. For God created both man and woman in his image with the commission to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, as well as to subdue and have dominion over it. We've emphasized the dominion subduing Although it's interesting, most people don't notice that you have to subdue the world before it falls. Uh, but we emphasise that side. But we have under-emphasised, I believe, the fruitful, multiplying, filling side, especially under the, th- the threat of zero population growth, the ZPG movement. God saw that it was not good for man to be alone and created a suitable helper for him. Suitable, bone by bones, similar, suitable woman with whom he could unite because of the diversity and so marriage is true outside of the church and outside of Christianity it falls before those that is non-christian marriages are true marriages it's a matter of creation it's a matter of humanity it's even true outside any specific formal ceremony there's very little in the scriptures telling you what the ceremony of the covenant should be like it's the reality of men and women living in a reproducing sexual union. I'll give it to you again. Men and women living in a reproducing sexual union. For the priority of reproduction over relationship has been lost by us of recent times. Christopher Ashe in his big book on marriage has argued, I think, very helpfully to pull us back to see the priority of childbearing for marriage that marriage is not fundamentally about the relationship of the husband and wife. Marriage is fundamentally about being part of humanity's responsibility to multiply and fill the earth. That is not to deny a need for union, but even the need for union has to do with the procreation, as I'll show in a moment. That is, God's plan is a united humanity. And each new start in expansion of that united humanity is linked into the one great web or network of humanity as a man leaves father and mother and a woman leaves father and mother and the two are united to each other to create a new father and mother and a new set of these relationships. And so our families are constantly being interwoven with each other and society is built out of these connections that happen in terms of marriages in this context you see nobody is left out there are no singles, there are no individuals in society, everybody is a son or a daughter, a sister, have sisters or brothers aunts, uncles, cousins, grandparents, grandchildren that is we shouldn't think of ourselves as individuals we should think of ourselves communally but in a society today we are so individualist that if I'm not married I call myself single Nobody is single. If you've got a parent, you've got a child. And if you are totally single, an orphan, which is a great tragedy, you in particular are the object of God's affection and should be the object of the Christian church's affection because that would be a dreadful state to be in that you have absolutely nobody in this world. That's why widows and orphans in particular are God's concern because the part and parcel of humanity is that we are interconnected with everybody else and should be. Now the smaller we give our families, the rarer we go to marriage, the more individualistically we push, the more dysfunctional our humanity is and our society is and that is what's happening in our community. Big families are gone, little families are here, tiny little families, one, two children, that's it, no more and had very late in life and when you have a whole series of families like that, very few cousins. Um, my father, born a hundred years ago now, a uh, hundred and uh, a couple of years, a hundred years ago, uh, was lived in a relatively normal family of thirteen children, eleven children. I've got cousins, uncles, aunts all over the car. I don't know how. I don't know them. We have family reunion. We spend most of our time introducing ourselves to each other. <laughs> I mean, it, there are there, are, but that was a normality a hundred years ago. That was not abnormal, that was not extraordinary that was just what life was like well you can see how well bound a community is when every person has connections with every other person you don't need five steps of connection it's three or four, I couldn't walk around the eastern suburbs of Sydney without seeing uncles or cousins They, they were every. there's no naughtiness you could get, get up to because there's always an uncle around the corner although with my uncles they were around the corner being naughtier than I was <laughs> that's another story this sense of everybody being in a community is really important you see Andrew Lee whose great-great-grandfather was the Lee of Lee College the the Methodist Church um, Andrew Lee's produced this book called Disconnected he was a professor of economics at the ANU and is now uh, the member for parliament in ANU for the Labour Party Uh, in which he goes through, working out of the work of Mr Putman in America, a North American Harvard scholar, just goes through showing how our society is falling apart. It's becoming disconnected. Voluntary organisations are ceasing to function properly because people are individualists. They don't know how to be communalists anymore. And, of course, society doesn't work when it's like that. As I was driving here today... I'm sorry to say I drove here from Piedmont. As I was driving here today... The ABC is discussing uh, the advantages of credit unions over banks. And the whole discussion is actually... It's a very interesting discussion as they start to work out that people are members of organisations like credit unions and certain mutual societies, things like the uh, NRMA, and they don't realise the difference between that and a bank Uh, or an insurance company. The insurance company is there and the bank is there to make profit for the shareholders... The mutual society is there for profit for the members. The demutualisation of AMP was a Christian tragedy, led by a Christian man, I may say. But AMP was there for the benefit of its members. It is now there for the benefit of the shareholders. And that is a different concept in society. And it's just part of the materialism, commercialisation of all relationships. I do things for you, I... I get paid, you do things for me, you get paid, rather than we're living together, let's help each other. It's a different way of thinking. Now our friends from the third world and after morning tea, we're going to be talking about cross-cultural work, our friends from the third world they are communalists very often. Our African uh, friends who have just arrived they cannot understand how our society works because You you live culturally in community all the time. Our Sri Lankan Indian friends, they don't understand that. It doesn't make sense to them. And that's one of the things where there there are disadvantages in communalism. And if I was here with a group of communalists, I'd tell you the disadvantages. But I'm here with a group of individualists, with a few communalists around that I see. And the disadvantages of individualism are quite profound. Marriage is, of course, a key part of the created communalism. By putting all our eggs, though, into... I just think I turned a page too quickly, but I've just got to check here now. By putting all our eggs into the perfect romance, we've made a terrible botch of marriage. I think I mentioned at one of our conferences this uh, uh, book, which is in glossy paper, so it's actually very heavy... Um, uh, sex Before the Sexual Revolution by Simon Zretter um, and Kate Fisher Cambridge academic who actually does interviews of old people about what sex and marriage was like before the sexual revolution of the 1960s it was communalistic he, he finds it really difficult to understand, he's a very good scholar so he reports what he finds but he can't understand what he's finding because these people didn't marry for love They didn't marry for romance. They married because they were adults. When I'm an adult member of the community, then I leave home and I start my own family. I'm going to start my own family. Well, I'd better find somebody who I can start the family with. Mary Joan lives around the corner. I'll go and talk to her about it. I haven't fallen in love with her, but she's a nice, responsible girl. I know her family. Her family knows my family. she, she dresses well. She looks after things. And when you go around there and Mary Jane looks at you and says, yeah, well, he, he, he takes a bath once a week. He's a clean kind of person. He's got a good steady job. That's who I'll marry. And then afterwards we start talking about and find out about sex. That's, that's something for after you're married when, because marriage is about having children so it's going to be about having sex. So it's, it's a totally different concept of marriage which existed just 50, 60 years ago in our society. Hollywood in the 1930s, 40s brought in the idea that you marry for love. Christians bought it because the word love's there in the Bible, isn't it? We're all the people of love. And our modern translations got rid of charity, which in many ways is a better translation, and put in the word love. And so now 1 Corinthians 13 is all about marriage, isn't it? Well, hardly. But here is now, and so we marry for love. And we even write it into our very concepts of our wedding vows. more of that in a moment or two but when you put all your eggs into the perfect romance we put marriage on a pedestal and put unbearable pressure on its success we we hope that we're going to meet all our emotional needs and all our meaning of life in a relationship with one other sinful person it really is putting far too stress too much stress on what could possibly be the outcome to say nothing of the fact So as the sexologists tell us, the sense of falling in love, the, the thing that they call limerence, only lasts for three to five years. So if that is the essence, the glue of my marriage, it's very unlikely to continue on for 30, 40 years. And so you move from limerence to a new understanding of your relationship, which if you haven't got any understanding of relationship, means that you pack it in. We've created a thing called mariolatry. It's Mariolatry with an extra R. And it affects our church life in many ways. Not the least, it makes unmarried people feel that they're outsiders, failures and disconnected from humanity. And so we have all these issues about singleness and the discussions of singleness, which we've created by the emphasis we've placed on marriage, which never was a right thing, instead of on family. We've created the problems of weddings, in a new word that I've created for today, wedding-olatry. Our weddings are grander than royalty. The princess for the day is the bridezilla of the month. And the words that we say at the weddings are meaningless gobbledygook because what really counts is the dress, the cake, the photographs, the reception, the music, everything else is important except for the actual words of the service. Uh, In the Book of Common Prayer weddings were to be conducted during morning prayer after the second lesson you were sitting in your congregation as a member of the community and when it came to marriage you came down the front you got married and they sent you back and you sat in the pew to finish off the rest of the service there was none of this special wedding for a special day at a special occasion it was part of church life it was part of community life it wasn't your day, which of course is never your day, dear girls. It's always your mother's day because it's the mother-in-law's graduation day. Grooms, you need to understand because she has finally proved that she's a proper mother because she's got a daughter married in the right kind of princess. But we've created a nightmare in our weddings. <laughs> it's such a nightmare that people are now telling us they cannot get married because they cannot afford the wedding. That is one of the reasons people are in giving for being de facto's. I couldn't afford the wedding because the average wedding is costing at this point I don't know it depends which magazine that I've just read recently but forty, fifty, sixty thousand dollars which in an age in which in a city in which you can't afford a deposit for a house that's an obscene amount of money to be spending on a party I and mean, it's ridiculous but we've created this. Furthermore We've reached the point that a lot of people just don't see the point in having them and so there's an ever-growing number of de facto relationships which means that our people make private, uh, people are making that which is private public, namely sex, and making that which is public private, that is marriage. It's really important that the community, as a community, recognises that you are now a husband and wife and you are now going to have children, which we're going to accept. But they slink off and just start living together and the news seeps out around about that they're living together and we're not sure how long for or what it's about. About 10 years ago, the federal government uh, set up a commission and put out a a report which is called Uh, To Have and to Hold, Strategies to Strengthen Marriage and Relationships. It's a very useful book. It's been out since about 1999. Uh, You'll get it on government uh, websites, To Have and to Hold, Strategies to Strengthen Marriage and Relationships, in which they gather together research from around the world to talk about the character of relationships and divorce and marriage and what marriages work and why they do and whether de facto's were good or bad or the rest of it. It was a telling report because every prejudice that any Bible reading Christian has was reinforced with statistical surveys from every culture in the world. Report after report after report just shows that de facto relationships are a disaster they're a disaster for the children. They're a disaster for future marriage. They're a disaster if they turn into a marriage. They're a disaster especially for women. There's much more sexual abuse and physical abuse in de facto relationships than there ever is in de jure marriages. They're a disaster for the children. There's much more sexual abuse from stepfathers and the like than there ever is from natural fathers. It just goes on and on and on. It was not good for anybody. The chairman of that report was Kevin Andrews, who's a uh, Roman Catholic a member of the Howard government and who's now a frontbencher for the uh, Liberal Party still. This is not a plug for the Liberal Party or the Labor Party or any other party. just Kevin Andrews has an interest in this issue. And his interest, I think, comes from his Roman Catholicism. He's just produced this uh, book uh, called Maybe I Do, which is really sad because it should be I Will, Maybe I Do, Modern Marriage and the Pursuit of Happiness. It has come out, well, I got my copy yesterday, uh, last night. Um, and so you see how far I've read already? Uh, is that impressive? No, I looked up the index for something in particular. Um, I've got, I haven't read it. I only got it last night, and I've been I'm doing other things this morning. However, uh, I just looked up cohabitation, you see, because this book is just updating what he did as a, in a committee 10 years ago, as far as I can see, having glanced at it overnight. Um, The cohabitation effect. In a 1996 article of the Journal of Marriage and Family, Susan Brown and Alan Booth observed that marriages preceded by cohabitation show lower levels of marital interaction, higher levels of disagreement and instability, lower levels of commitment to marriage, and higher levels of divorce than marriages without previous cohabitation experience. Similarly, Stephen Nock and others have noted that in many instances, cohabitation... It's not a relationship with the future, but one that lasts for a period of time and then ends either through marriage or dissolution. And that cohabitation and marriage differ not only in quantity, but also in quality. uh, Professor Sarantokos, and he just goes on. One report after another, footnoted, telling you of the disasters that the world is going on with. It's all here. It's available to you. That is, the Bible's advice is the right advice in the practicalities of investigations from our community. But you won't read it in the media. And it's politically incorrect to mention it. And it's never put up in the Parliament, which is why Kevin Andrews is doing what he's doing. Now, he's a politician coming at it from that end. You and I are Bible teachers coming at it from this end. But what is being said is the same thing. And we have a message for our society at a point of deep hurt for our society. But we've got to stop shutting up about it. We mustn't be apologetic about it and defensive about it. Christian marriage is the way to go. Christian family life is the way to go. We need to encourage it and enforce it inside our own family life, inside our congregational life, and sell it and spell it out to the community around about. It's an important thing to do. For God's plan and intention was unity. Unity was part of God's intention for humanity. That is, God didn't create lots of humanities. Oh, we've wound up with lots of humanities because of the Tower of Babel, but God's intention was unity. It was the fact that we were using our unity to rival God that God then sent judgment upon us to disperse us, but his aim always was unity. One family of mankind, one blood, has been a critical argument that we had in indigenous rights in the 19th century, that we as Christians were the only people who stuck up, stuck up before the Aborigines because they are one blood with us. And as we are to be one with Christ, so we are united with our spouse, children, our family, in that wonderful phrase from Genesis, the two become one flesh. Malachi 2.15 reflects this plan and purpose of God. Did he not make them one and with a portion of of the Spirit in their union? Now translation of this very elliptical passage and verse have found it difficult for it could be even referring to Abraham because it talks about the one uh, who in seeking offspring took a second and foreign wife, Hagar, which turned out to be such a disaster it's not an easy verse I warn you of that in terms of the Hebrew that lies behind it but following the translation of the ESV which I think is a reasonable or right one though I'm not a good enough Hebraist to be certain following the translation before us it's making a larger statement recurring the nature of marriage which the passage itself does it's saying that God united man and woman by his spirit given to each that there is a bonding between them that is supernatural, which will explain why parting by death or divorce is so damaging, so difficult, so debilitating, so disastrous. See, Mark chapter 10, verse 9, Jesus said, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. It is actually the work of God to unite people in marriage. It's because marriage is about unity that broken marriages are so devastating. And why did God want to unite couples? Uh, Malachi 2:15 gives the answer: Godly offspring. That was his intention and purpose. That is what he was seeking. You don't need this unity to have offspring, but we do need to have it to see them raised to fear and love the Lord. They need all the help they can get, and a stable home is one of the most important helps. The statistical correlation between unstable family background and troubled young people and young adults should need no rehearsing from me, except we do. You see, it's true that some single divorced parents have done a fantastic job in raising their children. And we don't want to ever say anything that would be a discouragement to them or a put down of them. But they are the rare exceptions. They are not the normality in general, it's the United Parents who have the highest success rate in raising godly offspring. Recently, Professor Parkinson, the professor of law at Sydney University and Family Law, wrote Governments in Australia should come up there, governments in Australia cannot continue to ignore the reality that two parents tend to provide better outcomes for children than one, and that the most stable, safe and nurturing environment for children is when their parents are and remain married to one another. The statistical information on this is overwhelming. It's not, you know, he starts off this book saying this is not a religious book, it's not a religious argument. I'm sorry he says that, but I understand why he does. He's arguing as a politician. As a Christian, I want to say it is a religious argument. It's a very religious argument. Get rid of God, you'll get rid of community. You'll put, make man the individual as God in his place, and you will wind up not with marriage. It doesn't work. It actually comes out of God. Creation comes out of God. Reconnect people to God through redemption. You'll reconnect them to creation. You'll create family life. And you'll create humanity. The atheist is antisocial. And therefore profoundly dangerous to our society. They must be resisted and spoken against. There's nothing that a man can do for his children that is more important than being united to their mother and there is nothing that a woman can do for her children that is more important than being united to their father this covenant faith is the glue of marriage that makes it work marriage is a covenant making solemn promises for the future setting out the conditions you know for better for worse for richer for poorer and sickness and in health forsaking all others keeping only unto you as long as you both shall live There's the wordings, there's the contract. The questions in the wedding service are about the future. They are about will you, not do you questions. And the answers are about I will. The wedding is asking, will you keep faith with your spouse or are you fickle and free and easy with your word? I remember a prostitute I saw come to Christ who told me that life went downhill for her from her wedding day onwards, because on the wedding day she remembered walking down the aisle on her father's arm, thinking to herself, well, if it doesn't work, we can always get a divorce. Well, that's a self-fulfilling prophecy if you've ever heard it. If you enter in with that mindset, you're actually writing the recipe for the outcome, aren't you? It's the wedding promise, the covenant nature of marriage that leads to adultery being called unfaithful, But adultery is only one form of unfaithfulness. You promise to love. Withdrawing that love is unfaithful. You promise to honour. Dishonouring or despising or showing disrespect is being unfaithful. So the wedding vows are critically important. and We as a diocese need to get the words right, which we're struggling with in our liturgical candles at the moment. You see, those who wish to change the nature of marriage understood this and have changed the vows over the last 50 years in our liturgies. We who administer the wedding vows, ordained ministers of the church, we who administer the wedding vows mustn't be sloppy and seek short-term popularity, making the kind of happy day that the couple want because we're teaching the community what marriage is about. In that service and we who teach people of marriage through the wedding service the wedding preparation and the service itself mustn't avoid the confrontation with the world's view so actually let the couple draw up their own vows and say the silly nonsense of gibran you know and things like that as long as we are going this gobbledygook stuff that people go on with you're not helping them in the slightest sitting them down and saying look this is what husbands do this is what wives do, this is why we're asking you to promise these things, is actually having a discussion of reality in married life that the society is not doing. It's really critically important that we do it. Let me show you the movement to help you with this is what this is why you need to understand liturgiology, this is why you need to understand go to Synod. Let me show you what's happened over time. See the Book of Common Prayer has these vows which we have come up there. That's what the Book of Common Prayer asked in the vows and the consent for the couple to say. You'll see in the gold how some of those things are are different. I don't know what the gold slashes we have there. Now go back, keep going back to BCP. Go back one slide please, thank you. Just see that they are different. And That difference is really important because marriage is not unisex. We do not marry persons. We marry a man to a woman and make them a husband and wife, not partners. Partners are what you do with a business. Partners are what you do with a golf. But marriage is about a husband and a wife and a spouse. It's a fundamentally different activity that we're involved in. And the couple are uniting not a family the couple uniting are not a family creating what we're really doing is in uniting people to raise children and the the love that we're promising is the sacrificial love of faithfulness to the covenant whereby you lay down your life for the other person not just the easy kind of love that is going on in romance in our society now it's important that our liturgy then reflects all this and there's been an incredible slippage. You see, when the book of common prayer came out, at the end of the wedding service it says after which if there is no sermon declaring the duties of man and wife, the minister shall read as followeth All ye that are married and that intend to take the holy state of maritimony upon you, hear what the Holy Scripture doth say as touching the duty of husbands and wives of husbands towards their wives and wives towards their husbands. He then outlines those duties distinctively quoting first to the husband, the references in Ephesians, Colossians, 1 Peter and then to the wife going through her duties as are plainly set forth in scripture. That is, submission which has been the, the, the big argument that's gone on in the media, it's just the tip of the iceberg. It's a fundamental different view of the roles of husband and wife that they are not interchangeable equally married, equally spouse but with different duties and responsibilities as is reflected in our prayer book. Now what happened in 1978, we put the next one up, in 1978 we changed the prayer book and we had two forms of service number one is the conservative one, number two is the new radical one in the conservative one the number of differences between husband and wife are reduced Uh, cherish and obey are still there, but cherries should obey. They're the only ones that are different. With the radical, there are no differences at all. What is promised by the groom is identical to what is promised by the bride. That's a very different view of marriage to 1662, and I believe a very different marriage to uh, to the concept of the, of the Bible. But then notice the political astuteness of the APBA, the next book that came out, thank you, next slide, the next book that came out here the radical view of 1978 became the conservative service of 1995 well the radical one was unisex so now the conservative one is unisex and the new radical one is using the language of today but it's totally un- in fact both services in APBA are unisex you see the feminists wrote the book that political work is still reflected today so in 2011 next slide thank you in 2011 we put out a proposed book which had again lots of differences provide honor protect help love respect cherish submit protect submit but then when it came to synod a month ago it had been changed again look at this one And now we only had one point of difference, protect, submit, and another cherish, respect. That's what happens. Well, we we argued in Synod, and that, that 2012 version has now been sent back for revision by the liturgical panel, which have come up with something like 2011, and I think, but we had to argue the case. It was not something that could just, would float through. It actually had to be argued for again and again and again. But just to teach to have weddings which are unisex is to teach the wrong model of marriage. Because it's not unisex. We're not marrying person to person. We're not marrying partners. And we need to teach it in our wedding services and in our wedding preparation. And that's what being Anglican is, because being Anglican is the Book of Common Prayer. And the Book of Common Prayer says that's what you should be doing. You're doing it for the sake of the couple, for the sake of those who are already married to remind them what they've promised, and for the sake of those who are thinking about marriage and I want to say for the sake of the rest of the society as well, so that we understand what it is we're talking about. Back to Malachi 2. Judah in Malachi 2 is being accused by God of marital unfaithfulness. They're unfaithful by, firstly, embracing mixed marriages. I mean, how can one be Yahweh's people, one of Yahweh's brides, and unite yourself in marriage to an outsider of Yahweh? In 2.11, though, Judah's action in marrying the daughter of a foreign god is the break of faith profaning the temple and the like and God has warned against forbidden mixed marriages but secondly there's the issue of divorce God is the witness at your wedding God unites us in marriage God wants us united for godly offspring divorce is not his plan or purpose God is faithful and loving God makes covenant with his people and keeps his covenant God seeks uh, keeping your word even to your own hurt as being the nature of one of his people. It's the sign of the godly person in Psalm 15. Divorce, therefore, is against the very nature and character of God. Unfaithfulness is violent hatred. Look at verse 16. It's a very strong word. For the man who hates and divorces, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless the NIV says God hates divorce unfortunately the Hebrew doesn't it's actually the man who hates and divorces is a man of violence that's what it is he mightn't bash his wife he mightn't hit but to walk out on your wife is the most violent thing you can do few things in life are so violent and damaging than to betray somebody's trust especially the most important person to whom you've given such trust Adultery is never love. It's always lust, not love. It's hate, not love. But it's never love. Those who are unfaithful over little will be unfaithful over much and there's nothing much, more, much bigger than your wedding promises. It's why politicians trot out their wives at election time to demonstrate their trustworthiness. It's also why you can't trust a politician because he uses his wife to demonstrate his trustworthiness and also because they divorce them so frequently. If a man won't keep his promise to his wife, why should you expect as a member of the community that he's going to keep his election promises to you? Faithfulness, trustworthiness is a key characteristic, but you're not allowed to ask the question, is this politician divorced? That's a no-no. Their private life is their private life. It's not. When it comes to their government, their character is a key element to government leadership. And there's no greater test of character. Friends, faithfulness can sometimes be very difficult and very costly. It can be the harder path travelled today by a few because you cannot in the end control what your spouse will do. You may be faithful to your spouse but it requires your spouse to be faithful to you and that is something beyond your control. It's so easy for a man to tire of the wife of his youth. She bore his children, supported him as he established his career, building their household through the tough years, and then for him to forget his promise and obligations and look at greener, younger pastures, and, like everything else in a materialistic world, trade her in for a new model. It's what we do with everything else. Why wouldn't we do it with her? It's so easy for a woman to feel trapped in the promises of her youth. Bound to a husband who doesn't understand, burdened by children and housework, whose demands are unceasing with mind-boggling boredom, wanting the freedom to go out into the world, to be a person again, to be an individual, to be appreciated, to engage in the affairs of society, of adult community and enjoy the the fruits of, of the wealth of our society. When divorce is easy, faithfulness goes out the window. Trust is weakened in society and people's understanding of the faithful God and having faith in God dissipates because creation is connected to the creator. Undermine creation, you're undermining the creator. So one of the groups least represented in our churches are those who are faithless in their marriages For marriage and community come from God and it's hard to continue in faith in God while walking away from your family and faithfulness in your own covenant promises. So Christians have a vested interest in marriage. Not in your marriage, in marriage. It's a community activity. Our message is that of having relationship with God. We are the people of relationship with a relational God that leads to relationships with others based in the covenant promises and lived out in faithfulness to the word and faith in God's word because we're the people of the new covenant. God has made a covenant with us, signed and sealed in the blood of his son and he will keep his promises to forgive and to save us but how can we accept his covenant promises while ignoring or rejecting our own covenant promises? How can the faithless have faith? Do you see the problem? If you know God is your father and Jesus is your Lord so that you're part of Christ's bride, the church, then your life is to be one of covenant faithfulness. That you don't go through religious rituals, but you live consistently with your promises. Malachi's day, they went through the religious rituals, but profaned them by not living God's way. So in our day, we must live with God as our Father and with Jesus as our Lord, and therefore won't marry except in the Lord. And when we marry, we'll keep our promises to our bride or groom. We will spurn divorce. Reject unfaithfulness and pursue unity relentlessly. For we know that in our marriages God is our witness. He has united us, and God God is united, no man should put us under. Now as we ponder this passage, then there are all kinds of implications we can see about choosing the suitability of a spouse. Faithfulness is the key. Is he faithful over little? Is she faithful over little? If they're not faithful over little, they won't be faithful over much. Are they faithful even to their own hurt? Are you faithful to your own hurt? Faithfulness is so important and love is so unimportant. Romance, that is. Love is so unimportant. Also, implications as we marry. What are the words that are actually going to say what the Bible says? What are the promises that should be made? and as we listen to others marry, we should be renewing our own commitment. We've got to constantly renew our commitment. We've got to constantly steel ourselves again to what it is we promised. Kevin Andrew, and you can get this on the website, Sydney Anglican website, has produced a little list, and he says, despite this discussion about the topic, is often met with a series of common objections over the years... I've collected these responses. Some are well-meaning, others designed to dismiss the arguments and stifle discussions. They are, we have to move with the times. It's a return to the bad old days of fault divorce and prying detectives. Uh, Marriage is just a piece of paper. Uh, We shouldn't stigmatise single parents and their children. It's none of the government's business and we don't need the government playing big brother. It's a male conspiracy to subordinate women. Uh, by the way, uh, this business, about women being the chattels and owned, things owned by their husbands, I think is a myth. I'm sure there are some cultures in which that has happened, but if you read the prayer book and the Bible, you couldn't come to that conclusion. It's just impossible. In fact, in the wedding in the prayer book, only the husband gives the ring, not the, the wife, which is why you'll notice I don't wear a wedding ring because I'm an Anglican, Um, and got married by the Book of Common Prayer so I've never worn a wedding ring because I gave my wife the wedding ring and when I gave her the wedding ring I promised her all my worldly possessions. She didn't promise me anything. At the time she was wealthy, teacher, I was a poor, more college student so it wasn't much of a promise but on the other hand there's no way the Book of Common Prayer thinks the wife is the possession and chattel and owned by the husband when in fact... He gives her his whole wealth. It just, it's a myth. This is a right-wing conservative and or religious argument, which he's very keen not to be that. Uh, we are unmarried uh, with children and they're just fine. You don't know that. But when you look at the statistical outcome, they're not. Right? Overwhelming the children of divorce have bad health, bad education, a lesser education, lesser job prospects, marital unhappiness, relational unhappiness, uh, higher rates of psychiatric use, higher rates of drug abuse, higher rates of suicide. There's no statistic upon which the children of divorce do better than the children of intact families. Not one that anybody cares about. But people will still say, well, my, you know, we're divorced and my children are okay. I've met many of those children and they're not Okay. What about old-fashioned love? It's not. It's a modern invention. A history, you need to understand. The research is out of date or from elsewhere. Uh, this is a return to the common family structure of the past with higher levels de facto relationships and non-marital childbearing. In fact, he says it's not the past. The incident of divorces, and childbearing and single parenting is uh, significantly higher over the last few decades. It's going to get worse. It's not going to get better. And it's telling people how to live their lives. You see the individualism and the rebellious heart of man. I'm not sharing. It's my life. What I do in the privacy of my own home has got nothing to do with the rest of you. But marriage is not like that. And life is not like that.